Hello, and welcome to this episode of Her Music Academia, the podcast. I'm your host, Lydia Bangura. I'm a music researcher. Specifically, I research music theory, and I'm also an opera singer, so I have experience in classical music performance. I'm currently teaching and conducting research as a PhD student at the University of Michigan. And I started this podcast to have conversations with musicians all about what they do in music. So I talk to other music performers, I talk to music scholars, I talk to conductors, composers, producers, all about their interactions with music. Today on the show, it's our last episode of this fall season. Oh my gosh. Thank you for listening to the last eight episodes this fall. I'm truly so excited. Today is another full circle moment for the podcast. Today on the show, we have mental soprano Megan Enan. She's an active performer, does a lot of new music, and works with living composers directly to commission new works. She also has experience in coaching and in music entrepreneurship, truly so many jobs. We talk all about her early experiences in music all the way up to what she's doing now. And we also get into her work on creative placemaking, which is all about examining how communities work and function and how we as artists and musicians influence communities. We really dive into what makes a strong and consistent musical community and what are musicians in particular bringing to literal and abstract spaces. Her work is really fascinating, so if you want to get in touch with her to talk to her more about her work, all the links to her work and to her Instagram are in the show notes. Without further ado, here's our conversation. All right, hello everyone, and welcome to this very special episode of the podcast. Those of you who have been rocking with me for over two years know that this is a dream guest. You have no idea. <laughs> I am so excited to talk to this person. She's a fabulous mezzo-soprano with a really, really interesting performance career. Uh, she does a lot of stuff with music entrepreneurship. Um, and today she's on the show to talk about creative placemaking. I'm so excited to introduce my guest, Megan Enan. Megan, how are you? I'm wonderful. Lydia, thank you so much for for having me on the podcast. This is also a dream for me. Please, so thank you. Stop. Oh my gosh. I can't take it. You know I love talking to you every chance I get. <laughs> um, I always start off uh, each episode by talking about how I came to be familiar with the guest's work or how I met the guest. So this is something that I've already talked about on the podcast before because it was a rather formative musical experience for me, which was when you and Alan <laughs> came to Northern Arizona University where I got my undergraduate degree. I was there studying voice and it just happened to be like the cosmos aligned and it was like the perfect, I saw this concert at the exact right moment for me. So you, you both came and did this fabulous performance where Alan... Tyson? Is that how you pronounce it? Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. Just double checking. Exactly. Alan Tyson and Megan came to my undergrad and did this fabulous performance. He plays mm -hmm. alto yep. sax. Yeah. And like I mentioned, Megan is a mezzo-soprano. And so they gave this performance together and it was unlike anything that I'd ever seen. And it was just so... <laughs> 
fascinating to me. And I was in this composition class uh, where we were studying all compositions after like 1950 or 1960s. So mostly new music, modernist music, stuff that had come out in the past like 50 years. And so I was hearing all these sounds for the first time and thinking about composition in a really different way and like very like dangerously close to failing this class because I'm not a composer. (laughs) Don't get it twisted, y'all. I know I'm a music theorist. I'm not a composer. They are not one and the same. They are not one and the same. It is a no for me. The C was very close. I almost did not pass. I did pass. But, you know, I was experiencing this great class that I really liked with all this new music that I, you know, thought was so interesting. And then your performance happened in the middle of that semester. And it was just, it was just a real moment for me. And I just so enjoyed your performance. Yes. I so enjoyed your performance and your voice. So thank you so much for for coming. And I think I got to speak with you briefly after and then fangirl emailed you and then, yeah. (laughs) And then we've been friends ever since. That's true. (laughs) That's true. And then I, yes. And then I got to see you again um, this past year when I came to New Orleans for the first time, which was fantastic. So thank you so much for hanging out with me there. That was such a fun, I was there for the SMT AMS SEM craziness annual meeting and it was so much fun so it was great to meet you in person there as well yay uh I I love it every time we get the chance to meet up whether virtually or in person it just makes my heart glow so thank you so much for sharing that story also I do remember talking to you after that concert (gasps) listeners (laughs) because you brought up the uh, in that show, Alan and I, as part of MIATP, do, a, do these touring shows. So we do like a set, the kind of repertoire and stuff like that, and tour it around. And as part of that show, I was singing Cage Aria as as one of the yes. pieces. And I remember you coming up and talking to me afterwards, and you're like, we talked about this in class, and I want to talk to you about these things. <laughs> and I was like, I'm so glad you're talking about this in class, and also that you were excited about it, and like, I just remember that you were opened to all of these kinds of different musical expressions through that class and not like, oh, this is clearly for other people. Mm -hmm. This is not Mm -hmm. for me. You know, you were just really excited about it. It just kind of lit you up in a way. And then when we got to talk about it, it felt like very personal and fun to think about all of the ways that, you know, new music can be personal and expressive and all of that kind of yes. stuff. Yes. Okay. See, now I have so much to say just about that concert. I should just do a whole episode <laughs> recounting that concert and all of my fond memories. No, that's such a great point. Again, this concert came at the perfect time for me because we had just talked about that aria and I thought it was so fascinating. And I was like, wow, I would love to sing something like this. So then to see you actually do it live where, you know, previously yeah. I'd only heard recordings and I was so fascinated by the idea that it would be different every time that you perform it, even the same singer, right? Like couldn't do it the same any one time. And so I just think that piece is so interesting and fascinating. Do you have a recording of it? I do have a recording. The The like studio recording version hasn't been released quite yet. So stay tuned. But um, there is, I think there's at least one recording of me doing it on, on like live on YouTube. Okay. Which can I share this really funny story with you is that speaking of, I got a message on Facebook from like, a babysitter that I had like when I was a child who was like, Megan, is this you in this podcast? And I was like, what? And it was like, you know, at first you're like, wait, is this a spam message? Like, but also <laughs> I listened to it and it was, it was about John Cage and the, and silence and listening to music differently. And so this person 
it's, I think the podcast might be called like why music matters, something like that. And the person Mm. had shared like three different clips of people performing, (laughs) performing cage aria. One of them being Kathy Barbarian, Kathy effing Barbarian. (laughs) And like, and my, and my like random performance from YouTube. And I was like, Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) So this like friend of mine from like childhood who watched me when I was young, reached out to me and was like, I heard you on this podcast singing this piece. And it's so funny. It's like, that piece has like accompanied me through all of these really just fascinating situations as an Mm -hmm. artist, because there's that. And it kind of like provides these connections. And then over the pandemic, like Houston Grand Opera reached out to me and they're like, Megan, we know that you like performing this piece. Would you perform this as part of a live stream as well as like cage 433 as a live stream that we're doing on silence. And I was like, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. So like when you're a vocalist in school and you're like, someday I'm going to sing for Houston grand opera did not think it was going to be cage for four minutes and 33 seconds, but I am so here for that. <laughs> that is so cool. And I was like, okay, I love it. Okay. See now you, I just so many no, random literally, no, I already. Love it. I love it. The <laughs> listeners listen to the show for tangents. They wouldn't still be here if they didn't like a tangent, right? Listeners, they know what's up. Anyway. Listen, I'm your queen yes, of side quests. Yes. No, so I love this because I remember, like, I remember watching your performance, loving it, thinking it was so interesting. And I went to, you know, shout out to my teacher. She's great. But I did go to her after talking to you and I was like, you know, I heard this great performance, John Cage's Aria, blah, 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 blah. Like, what if I did this on my recital? And she was like, no. (laughs) Exactly. So that was a moment where I was like, ah, you know, I, I didn't at the time have the agency to be able to explore it. And so now this is inciting in me, like maybe this is the year where I try and, <laughs> where I try and learn it oh and maybe gosh. do my own recording or something. Yes. I don't know. That might be interesting. And also just like feel emboldened you and anyone in, who's listening, right? Picking up graphic scores and just allowing yourself to play mm-hmm. musically for a while Mm -hmm. is so empowering and so liberating, especially when we think of ourselves in the academic context of like learning, practicing, becoming, you know, becoming master musicians or whatever Mm -hmm. you want to think of that. But that it's so necessary, especially the farther you go in your professional life to retain that element of play and discovery and nurturing that with actual activities where you're like, how am I going to do that? Not just like, oh yeah, play is important or discovery or or experimentation are important, but then I don't ever do that in my practice room, right? Mm-hmm. Or I don't ever do that in my yeah. research. But then actually giving yourself a way to say like, oh, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna incorporate this into my practice time by just pulling out a graphic score and being like, well, what do I think the composer is telling me this right. <laughs> through this? Yeah, I, okay. One last thing, and then I promise we will actually <laughs> get into 
<laughs> but I also, one last thing about that performance that I also found was so fun was, so you did a song cycle with Alan that I believe he wrote. Um, and so there was a song cycle, yeah, on mm-hmm. that concert that he, that he wrote and that you performed together. Um, and they had, you know, these texts that were, you know, quite sexual in nature. Um, yes. <laughs> shall I say? And that was, the, that was their erotic poems. Yes, sure. yes, yes, yes. Um, and so that was the, that was also the first time I think that I had seen something that I had seen kind of a, a sexual art song display like that. And I just found it again, so fascinating, so liberating. Like, what does it look like, right? To be having this like really intimate moment with this music, but in front of an audience and you're inviting them into that. And I am sitting in the room feeling all these weird feelings watching you, but it was just so fascinating. So that was another moment where I was like, whoa, again, just all of these, all of these ways in which by doing a performance like that, by, you know, pairing your voice with not a piano, which was, you know, the the standard way that we think about art song, but with the alto sax and doing this really interesting rep, mm-hmm. like, you know, by doing that, you were really giving permission to me to even think about trying something like that or imagining myself doing that. And so again, I just, okay, I'm going to stop. But yeah, that makes me feel really good. Thank you. I don't know if you, you know how important that, that feels right now. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. I promise to stop gushing. No, I don't. I'm sure I'll gush this whole episode. All right. So let's start off by talking a bit about you and your own musical background and history. So if you could inform me and the listeners of where you're from and the music that was happening mm-hmm. in the place where you're from when you were born, if you're sure. from a musical family, all of your kind of yeah. early music experiences, what you were listening to, and when you kind of started to interact with music. Totally. Yes. So I'm from Iowa originally, and I grew up in kind of the Northwest corner. And then we moved to the center part of the state. My parents are both both musicians, but what I call kind of like journeyman musicians and artists. So my mom is a collaborative pianist, but she would definitely describe herself as an accompanist. <laughs> like, And my dad is a, is a theater educator. And so both of them were just immersed in that. And so I was, I grew up around, you know, the, the theater side and musical theater from all of my dad's work. And then my mom also being the accompanist for you know, seven choirs at my high Ooh. school. And she, she now works at Drake university. And so she also has all of these, you know, she's there every single day playing. And so we definitely have a professional musical household, but also not in that same way that, um, that they would have ever considered doing, doing this on a more visible stage mm. than that. Right. And so that also meant that, you know, when I wanted to go into music, when I decided to do my undergrad at, I went to Augustana, it's university now, but I went, it was Augustana College in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And I said, you know, I said, oh, okay, well, I want to major in in music. And my parents didn't bat an eye. They said, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. <laughs> like, but they, they, I remember very specifically my parents saying to me, well, having a career in the arts is hard. So you'll have to work a lot. You'll have to work really, really hard, but it's totally possible. And so, you know, but you're going to need to go get your education and training 
and then you'll, and then you'll work really hard. And I was like, okay. (laughs) But the minute I heard that, I was like, I was like, oh, so you're saying I can do it. Right. Like it was like, like you said, this permission slip was granted and I, and I just felt like, oh, well, this is possible. At first I thought I wanted to be a high school choir director because that would have been, you know, that was like my entire like concept of what it was like to be in a really meaningful mm-hmm. like music um, space. Can I ask, I play, so, oh, I'm sorry to interrupt, uh-huh. but can I ask like, so when yeah. did you start singing? Oh, sure. I think, especially if you kind of grow up like Midwestern and Lutheran and all of those things, you're like singing from like an early sure. age, you're singing in church choir, mm-hmm. you're doing all of that stuff. You're singing, like we had good music programs in all of our public schools. So, you know, you're constantly, you're like in all of that stuff from a very early age. And then I started playing viola in fourth grade. I took piano lessons from like six years old. Mm. I played flute for like a year, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, I like, so I had this experience and I play, I, I still play my viola, but I played viola all the way through college in addition to like focusing on singing. There was definitely a time period where it kind of came down to like, well, which one of these is the, is the one that you want to pursue more. And singing just felt like the thing I wanted to do more as a soloist. Mm. And so I love playing viola as part of an ensemble and just any chance I get to do those things, I'm like, yes. Uh, but I didn't, I didn't have the same feeling about playing my viola in a solo way mm-hmm. as I did about singing. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of where that diverged and where, so, but yeah, so my undergrad and then the same thing, I knew I wanted to go to a school that had more opportunities for performance and would help me network with people that were working more professionally for graduate school. Mm-hmm. And so it was really important to me to go to what I would what I would have called at the time like a name school. And so I did my master's at the Peabody Conservatory and that felt like I had a lot more access to performance opportunities, getting to meet a lot of people, yeah. a lot of information from my mentors about um, pursuing professional opportunities in the field. Hmm. Okay. Wonderful. I really appreciate getting to hear about your experiences. So after you left grad school, after you graduated, mm-hmm. I should say, how did you, I don't even know how to phrase this question because you do so much. So I'm like, where do we even start? Yeah. Because you have so many different, you know, fantastic things that you're pursuing. So I guess if you could just walk us through the progression of how you began to imagine and build the career that you have now, starting with, I guess, after you graduated. Sure, sure. When I finished grad school, I also was sitting there going like, okay, but like how? (laughs) (laughs) Like how do people do it? (laughs) So that was a big part. And I, I had a pretty clear hmm, moment where I realized that I couldn't afford personally to do young artist mm. programs. I couldn't afford to do something where I didn't work over yes. the summer. And my, my realization of what my own financial situation was and how that would play out in whether or not I could continue in my arts life was very clear in graduate school mm. and and right afterwards. And so that became kind of a turning point for me in 
whether or not I was able to pursue certain opportunities in the kind of traditional opera world that I was wanting Mm -hmm. to do. And what did end up happening is that all of these doors in contemporary classical music or new music opened because they were a lot more accessible to me at the time. So certain festivals that I was able to go to only like, well, quote unquote, only cost like a certain amount, but I was working full time. So I was able to, I was able to get the time off to go to a week long festival and pay for something like that because I was working full time Mm. with benefits and all of that kind of stuff versus not having any of those resources in my life. And that paved the way for me to realize that I was like, okay, I do, yes, have various passions in my life. And I do think they kind of reinforce each other. So like arts administration, teaching and coaching and performing kind of make these three pillars. They reinforce each other, but they also help to you know, those different skills have different ways of bringing in income. And I realized that I could kind of fashion what my career, what my portfolio, what my umbrella would look like. And it's not the same for Mm. everybody, but this is the path that I could follow so that I can pay my bills and continue to have lots of performance opportunities and get to do the parts of myself that I want to share in a teaching or coaching kind Mm -hmm. of way. And so I think that they go together and that's a big part. You know, I think we'll probably end up talking about this a little bit later, but it's a big part of the way that I coach other creative Mm -hmm. people is figuring out like what's important to them. And then also walking through like, well, how do we monetize these in sustainable ways so that you're doing the things you want to do, not what somebody else told you is the only way to make it Mm -hmm. quote unquote. And like (laughs) those things, and really just, I, I worked, you know, I worked 40 hour, 40 hour workweek day jobs that didn't have anything to do with music. Mm-hmm. You know, those were, and I didn't spend a lot of time um, feeling like regret about having to do that. Mm-hmm. I was like, no, 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 this is the part of my life that like pays my bills and makes sure that I have sources of income that I can also spend on the things that I want to do right now and get mm-hmm. better at and like that kind of stuff. So I don't know if that explains exactly that. It's just more that after I finished grad school, I I also had this moment of like, yeah, but how the heck do people make this happen? Because you don't just leave grad school or finish grad school and then suddenly, you know, every door in the musical world is open and they're giving you tens of thousands of dollars to like support yeah. your life. Like that's just not mm-hmm, how it goes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and so I was like, okay, well, how am I going to build this? What am I going to do to like live a fulfilling and meaningful life in the arts? And So these are the paths that I followed. And that is also to say that in each one of those, there are ends to those chapters where that particular solution or that particular collection of puzzle pieces doesn't make sense Mm -hmm. anymore. And you have to go, okay, well, now it's time for me to leave these full-time jobs and focus on this thing instead. Or the time when I left my higher ed teaching jobs because they didn't work anymore with the performance schedule that Mm. I had and I couldn't make those two things fit or align anymore. And so I was like, okay, I hear it. I like, I see the writing Mm. on the wall. I'm going to have to close this chapter on these things and find whatever comes Mm. next. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. I mean, it's amazing to hear that you have this 
sense of fluidity or flexibility, rather, that this career is supposed to be able to offer us. Um, (laughs) Except everything that you're saying is so true in terms of when you are, um, especially at a conservatory or in grad school, there is very much a singular narrative kind of pushed onto you about this is what a career in an opera looks like and this is what you have to do to be successful and you do these young artist programs and these competitions and you do the Met competition and you blah, 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 blah. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, what do you do if um, that doesn't work for you or if you don't have money <laughs> you can't? Yeah, I. Um, by, by the time right? the listeners are um, hearing this, I've already done an episode talking about this summer I did do my first young artist program. It was Yay! in Lucca, Italy, and it was fantastic. Ooh. I have some critiques. Listeners go back and listen to my <laughs> summer in review episode. Uh, it wasn't all yes. roses and sunshine, but it, but it was a worthwhile experience. And I will say Michigan funded the entire thing. I could not have gone. That's exactly. Great. I could not have gone yeah. if I was not attending a university with so much excess wealth and access to resources as mm-hmm. a Michigan has. So, yep. you know, that was a real moment for me where I was like, okay, well, I'm here and I I can take advantage of this. But previous to this point, you know, there were so many younger people in that program that were like 18, 19, 20. And they're like, yeah, of course, my parents just pay for me to go because that's what parents do, right? And it's like, mm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sometimes. Right? And like, you know, my parents... My parents would have loved to if they could have, but that was just not the way that our, that our like financial picture Mm -hmm, looked. mm -hmm. And so they were like, well, we're supporting you, but here we'll help you brainstorm all the ways you can figure out how to get there. (laughs) No, really there's so, there are so many like elitist and economic barriers to all of classical mm-hmm. music in general. And that's something that we don't really talk about when we're, you know, we're currently having so many conversations about DEI in classical music and what that looks like and getting more diverse voices and perspectives on stage, more women, more people of color. But uh, we don't really talk about economic diversity, right? Like, well, I think we absolutely should be. I think sometimes it gets buried in the conversation because. As, as you well know, that intersectional identities experience a lot of issues when it comes to economic diversity. Yes. And so, and, and literally everyone is experiencing this. So I think, especially in the arts, there are so many situations in which we're aware, like a lot of people are aware, people that are running festivals, people that are running schools, people that are, they are aware of that hurdle that burden mm-hmm. and yet it is that's the business model is education yeah. and training yep. and so they're working on finding ways to alleviate that burden from the people that are in the most precarious financial mm-hmm. situations in our field and sometimes people aren't like that's the other thing is that some i see a lot of people that are doing work to make that so much more accessible and so much more available to people but i also see people that are just very willing to like pull the wool over their own eyes and be like, well, they'll figure out the money. They'll figure if they care about being in the arts, they'll mm. figure it out. And you're mm. like, okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it is both a very present conversation, but also you're going to get all perspectives on it. And some people are willing to do the work and sometimes festivals are willing to be creative about how they're bringing in more resources to make that education and training more of 
available Mm -hmm. to their participants. And sometimes festivals are very willing to just be like, well, that's their exactly. problem. They got to figure out. How exactly. To and like, like you said, you've brought up, you that. know, intersectionality. And so we really have to consider the fact that, of course, you know, musicians of color are more likely to, you know, encounter um, financial barriers when it comes to participating in classical music. Even starting from, again, a, an early age, you have to have parents that can afford an instrument. You have to have parents that can afford the lessons. You have to have them available to pick you up from the rehearsal rehearsals and to take you to the yeah and so even from the jump we have to acknowledge that there's there's not equity there across the board um but yeah i i think um wealth disparities are just not something that comes up in conversations around diversity because we're you know the conversations tends to center around race and gender and sexuality yeah something that we definitely can consider more yes absolutely so always here to have that conversation and also talk about the ways that, it, like, I think what I'm really trying to say is I am absolutely someone that does not just go like, oh, well, that's too bad. Mm-hmm. And like, <laughs> because, because I know that experience and I'm like, well, I don't want only certain people who can afford it yes. to be able to have a life in the arts. And I think that that's so, I think that we all deserve to have a life in the arts in whatever form that means for us. Mm-hmm. And so through my work with like live music project where they where I'm the executive director that's a huge part of what we think about is like how are we making this more accessible to people with all of the challenges that we experience mm-hmm. so we're thinking about things like information access we think about internet access as part of that we think about transportation we mm-hmm. think about uh, do I feel welcome here? Mm. Am I financially able to access this experience mm-hmm. beyond just the tickets yeah. right those kinds of things so I hope that what people are hearing me say is that I'm very here. I'm, I'm here to have the conversation and participate in, in all of the ways that we can talk about how to make that access possible rather than, or that's for, for me, the, the conversation I want to participate in is how do we make this happen rather than this sucks and we should like burn it all down. Right. I think it's possible for us to think about, we all have these positions of power in our own lives, power and agency in our own lives to make changes and choices. And everyone who's listening has a chance to say like, oh, I do actually have the ability to make substantive changes here and make this more accessible to people. What am I doing to make that possible? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, So before we get into our main topic, I'd also love to touch a little bit on your teaching and coaching that you do. So can you tell the listeners a bit about that? Sure, sure. So my, I do, I I actually teach for Peabody now in their Peabody Launchpad program, which is their professional studies program. So I teach remotely for them because I live in New Orleans and Peabody's in Baltimore, (laughs) but um, so I teach there. I have taught voice studios in the past. I've taught at a number of uh, like, you know, higher ed institutions and I uh, had a private studio for a long time. And that has morphed into what I do through my coaching business. Now, my coaching started, oh my gosh, like almost 10 years ago. I think I've been coaching for 10 years and it started because at a certain point you run out of free time for coffees and like, let me pick your brain about this thing. And and so you just have to start saying like, well, my rate for this is this. <laughs> like, mm. And were uh, you finding, and so did this start because you were finding that there were a lot of 
musicians that were reaching out to you about like, how do I do this? Or I'm noticing your music entrepreneurship and I want to try and imitate what you do. Or is is that how that kind of started? And I think even more specifically, uh, I started a blog in 2010 because that's what you do mm-hmm. in the 2010s is like <laughs> write a blog and it still exists it's like so the sybaritic singer was this blog that I started in 2010 because I wanted I gave myself a challenge to I did a lot of performance reviews at the time and I wanted to be able to write about music in a way that felt positive and where I could share my thoughts about performance music etc succinctly, cohesively. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted a place to practice that. And so I just started a blog and started doing it. And about a year into that, I was like, oh, I'm going to start writing about music entrepreneurship topics because it's something that I'm trying to figure out for myself. And I started this whole series called 29 Days to Diva and these little like micro actions where we really just like break things down and say like, what's something manageable that I can do to make it feel like I'm moving my career forward so that it's not like, oh, well, if I had thousands of dollars or if I had unlimited time, then I could have a career in the arts. Mm -hmm. No, I want to feel like I'm able to do something right now that's helping me feel prepared, that's helping me feel like I understand my music business or my professionally creative life, as I like to call it. So I started writing about those things. When you start putting that out there publicly or you start putting you know, if you put any thought leadership out there publicly or content out there publicly and people start to recognize that you're passionate about that, then they'll ask you about things <laughs> and then they'll come to you and say like, hey, can we talk about this? And so at that that point in my life, you know, people were realizing that I was writing about it, that I was thinking about it a lot. And then they would ask, hey, can we have a coffee about this? Or can I talk to you about this thing? And at that point, I just, that's why I was like, oh, well, I would love to do that, but I need to start charging for my time because I, I wish I had free time to do this, but I don't. Mm, so. Okay. Okay. And so what has that kind of morphed into as it looks today? Sure. So my coaching business is kind of um, part of my pie chart of things along. So coaching, performing, and then my arts administration work through live music project, and, like the coaching and teaching side kind of are in the same pie slice for me. And my coaching business is working with individuals and smaller nonprofits, you know, if they need some consulting on like um, certain objectives in their business or growing certain aspects of what they're doing, or specifically working on things like systems automation to make their business run a little bit more smoothly. But I do that for both individuals and organizations. And with individuals, so much of our music lives comes down to like, oh, well, you'll figure that part out when you need it later, right? (laughs) So like you go through school, you might have like an introduction to like marketing or something like that as like your business class. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) and then you come out of school and you're like, but I don't know what a business is. (laughs) And I need to like- Or how to run one or who to ask. mm -hmm. You're right. And so I always just try to be like, my- coaching business is about being a teammate where we can talk through these things and help you figure out what your business looks like and how to optimize for time freedom and financial freedom. Those are the two things that I feel most strongly about. So that's, and then I do, obviously we, we've even seen each other in this context where I do workshops and masterclasses and all sorts of things, presentations for uh, series, festivals, schools, that kind of stuff, just to make that information 
more available for students, no matter where they are in their path. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, listeners, please check the show notes for the links to everything that Megan just mentioned, <laughs> her website. Please book a coaching with her. Like, <laughs> just do it. Check, Let's hang out. Come hang just out Just do me. it. Check the show notes. <laughs> um, okay. So since you have um, brought up Acropolis Mastermind, again, by the time the listeners are um, hearing this, they've also heard kind of my recap of Acropolis mastermind which was a really really cool kind of music business class it was a week-long experience that I got to do um, in the summer of 2023 and Megan got to make a guest appearance uh, to share some of the information that we're going to talk about so it was really really great to see you there it was such a you know an interesting and rich time um, in terms of me thinking about everything I could do with the podcast and with her music academia. So yeah. And when I asked you about what you wanted to talk about, you were like, would your listeners be into this? And I'm into it. So they're going to (laughs) be. You're like, so yes, we all are. We're here in this together. (laughs) So you gave this really interesting uh, talk about creative placemaking, which when I saw it again in the schedule, I was like, okay, I don't know what that means. I know Megan. So whatever it's going to be, it's going to be great, but I don't really know, you know, what that's going to be or what it, what it means. And it was such a fascinating, conversation that we had. So let's start off with um, kind of your definition of creative placemaking. Sure. So this is my own personal definition that I use when I'm talking about this with creative people is just that creative placemaking is the art of enhancing the this social identity, identity of a mm. place through your art making practices. So what I want people to take away from that is that, yes, it is rooted in actual place. And so I tend to think of placemaking as like physical space, but it can also mean our kind of like online or our virtual communities. It functions a little bit differently that way. But I do really like to think about we are enhancing the communal identity of a place through our art-making practices. So creative placemaking. Mm, fascinating. This is making me think of listeners. I'll also put this in the show notes. I'm forgetting the name of the of the author, but there was a um, an article I read probably about a year ago. I will find it. It's in the show notes um, about um, geographic music making um and uh, yeah mm-hmm. and what it what it means to for music to belong to a place and so first you have to again define yes. place and what what is a place and and um is it the things that are in that place is it what people call that place is it right so getting into kind of geography studies and what even is place and then getting into yes. what it is music doing there and does it belong there and who does it belong to and if those people move does that music move like you know all these interesting questions so I'll put that in the show notes that's an aside but yeah I I just find (laughs) this whole concept so interesting in terms of really breaking down what we do and it was such a again going back to mastermind it was such a great addition to the programming because I knew that I was definitely there for a lot of practical reasons like I was like yes I want to do you know kind of as you brought up all these things that music school doesn't teach you about business so like I want to do the marketing, I want to do the yeah. budgeting, I want to do right like all these practical things. Yes. And then you kind of came in <laughs> towards the end with this like existential, <laughs> but like, but like, what is music making and what does it mean to make music in a communal setting and what does it mean? And it was like, yeah. whoa, 
but these are equally as important questions that I feel, again, this is another kind of aspect in music school that we don't really think about is what, what, what does it mean to bring music to a place or to encounter the music in a, in a communal setting that's already there? So again, you're just bringing some really mm-hmm. interesting things up that are also not in music school. Yeah. Well, and I think there, and I can see kind of like across the country, schools and departments and programs that are, that are shifting some of their work towards including this. And you can see it happening, which is very cool. And you can see, uh, different schools are like artist and society, community engagement, all of those kinds of things. And all of that kind of works together, right? So I think that our businesses, you know, support ourselves and support our community. And so part of the reason why I talk about creative placemaking and community engagement so often is because, because we do not exist as artists in a vacuum and your business does not exist in a vacuum, right? So it is because this is a people-based business like mm. that, that I want us to be thinking about what is our role as artists in society, as artists in community. And the better we do that job, the better our businesses run. So I think that I want us to be thinking about absolutely the nuts and bolts of running your business, right? Because I sure. like sometimes I'll run into students who they feel uncomfortable about thinking about, you know, um, selling their their offers or being mm. able to get paid for what they do and stuff yeah. like that. So it's a lot easier for them to zoom out or extrapolate and think about how, oh, well, I'm going to think about all of these community-based things or I'm going to be an artist and community and therefore I don't have to think about my business. And I just want those things to go hand in hand a little bit more so yeah. that we're thinking about being positive contributors to our to yes. our community mm-hmm. through the work and business that we do. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I just want to bring up um, a few things that you specifically focus on in your presentation that stuck out to me. Um, so the first thing is even thinking about how do you go about building a community, right? Like what are the things yes. that go into structuring like a musical setting and a musical community? And so you kind of bring up these um three core tenets of that, which is shared value. So everybody kind of gathering around the same goals and needs and expectations, shared activities. So obviously doing things together actively and then consistency. So making sure that there's um, a time and a place that people can plan on regularly. Um, this brought to mind also what hmm, so many things that are coming to mind that I don't remember any of the authors of. So listeners, check the show notes. I'll find it. Um, but this whole concept of third spaces and that that oh, has totally. kind of yes okay so you're familiar with this concept absolutely <laughs> okay yes so um for the third listeners places are incredibly important <laughs> yes so for the listeners again this this um third spaces is kind of the idea uh, again forgive me author i will find it links in the show notes but you know this idea that we have kind of two main spaces we have work and then we have home if you're a student then it's school and home or whatever and then you have kind of a third space or multiple third spaces, places where you regularly go, where other people Mm -hmm. regularly go. So you encounter the same 
people over and over. You have spontaneous opportunities to meet new people and to actually learn names and make connections and remember people's faces. And I think, especially since the onset of the pandemic, you know, we've kind of been seeing the the loss of some of those spaces in terms of accessibility, in terms of inflation. Like again, how accessible they are they are financially for people, yes. um, especially yeah. young people, right? Who don't have mm-hmm. jobs or money to be able to, you know, um, meet other young people outside of their yeah. school um, or their home community. So, yeah, just just thinking through how do we make musical spaces and build musical communities around these shared activities and these shared goals and needs and the sharing of goals and needs and then also make it something that people regularly commit to going to which is also difficult to get people to commit to also Lydia I like never get to do this where someone from the workshop is like responding (laughs) to this and like you're doing such a beautiful job of like synthesizing this information and (laughs) I'm nothing if not a student yes honey (laughs) (laughs) So I'm I'm like feeling so so delighted as like as a you know as a mentor in this situation. <laughs> well that part really stuck out to me because you know I again it wasn't what I was going into the workshop thinking that I needed but it's mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. important for me in relation to this podcast because you know this is I'm going into my third year of making this show and it's a thing that I love to do I'm so happy to be connected to all the listeners I love when the listeners send me emails I love when they you know, are active in giving me suggestions for things that I could talk about. Or again, it's happened multiple times on the show that someone has sent me an email saying, I really like the show. You know, I'm a professor here and I just think that your work is really interesting. And I ask, oh, tell me more about what you do. Do you want to be on the show? Come on the show. And then then we get them on the show. So I love that this is hopefully an online musical community that I'm building here where the listeners actively get to engage with guests that they hopefully think are interesting. I get to engage and expand my own network and ask so many questions for, you know, about some things that I find really interesting or some things that I know nothing about. And by the end of our conversation, I'm fascinated by it. And like, these are really important things for me to think about as somebody who does have the goal of creating an online musical community, then I have to really, you know, take these questions seriously. So that was just something that really popped out to me. Yes. Well, that's exactly what I'm hoping is that just having these kind of sound bites where we think about what are my shared values Mm -hmm. with the people that I'm sharing the space with? What are our shared activities? And then what is the consistency element of this that means that it doesn't just happen once and then disappear? Mm-hmm. You know? we, we have to reinforce these bonds with each other through our shared values and our shared activities. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so another thing that I want to pick your brain about is, you know... This has come up a few times like this season. We're in the middle of like a a fall um, season recording kind of era. And um, something that's come up on a few other episodes is um, kind of the sentiment of wanting to bring 
classical music into certain communities, right? That perhaps don't mm-hmm. don't place high. I know I'm trying to be diplomatic. Um, <laughs> you can tell I'm already getting mad, but I think <laughs> you know the whole business of yes. of some people who are really determined that you know classical music, you know, doesn't have um, you know we're not selling out stadiums like Beyonce. And why is that? Why is it that younger people aren't interested in classical music? Or why is it that, you know, communities of color are without classical music, devoid of classical music? And so how do we, um, you know, make classical music matter to these communities? And how do we, you know, enrich these communities with classical music? Now, I have a lot of thoughts about this. Let me, let me ask you first. So. <laughs> let me, let's start with you before I start yelling. Um, <laughs> You about the the sentiment in terms of, you know, again, these are community-based questions that people are asking. Like they're coming from a a good place of of wanting to share classical music with more people and feeling like Mm -hmm. the problem is accessibility. And in a lot of ways it is. But let me not ask like a leading question, like, but why is that wrong? It's not wrong, but it's it's complicated, is what I would say. And I would love to yes, know your your thoughts on that sentiment. That (laughs) the first thing is that we're going to check within ourselves and say, why do I believe that XYZ community is, quote unquote, without classical music? Why do I think that they're without the arts in some format? Mm -hmm. And I'm going to check within myself if that just means that maybe I'm not really a part of that community enough to understand what arts and, and cultural activities are really mean meaningful yes. to that community. And I should start with understanding each other and like being a present part of a community mm-hmm. and then saying, is this something that you would like? May I share this music that I'm really passionate about with you? Mm. And I think that if we start with this idea is that we have to, we just really, really need to be aware and even lift it up one level from like, white savior complex Mm -hmm. in music, classical music, savior complex, which is just step back and realize that classical music is really important to you. Mm -hmm. And your desire to share that with a lot of people or to share that with people for whom they also want that experience is a positive thing. Mm -hmm. Now, how do we go about doing that in a way that's healthy and supportive of all types of communities and all types of people, right? Is not walking into a situation and saying, you know who needs this? This other person, mm-hmm. right? But starting from a sense of like, I I really love this. I've experienced so many benefits from both performing and listening to classical music or contemporary classical music, whatever it is for you, early music. And this idea of saying like, I have experienced all of these benefits and I would like to share this with other people who are looking for this. Some of the ways that I know that people don't always get to engage with this very very often are because of the places in which it gets performed, the ticket prices at which those concerts are held. Like you can think through all of those things and then say, okay, well, is it possible for me to share this love and this passion that I have for this type of music with someone and ask them, would you like to come to this? Can I make it easier for you to engage with this Mm -hmm. would you also like to share your music with me can I be a part of your community Mm -hmm. we are not (laughs) the sole arbiters Mm -hmm. of music and culture Mm -hmm. in the whole world say that (laughs) 
Mm. And also, it like you know, everyone, everyone has had traditional music in their in their in their culture, in their life, in their heritage, in their background, and and then that means that we need to be in a thinking in an open and engaging way. Can mm-hmm. can we get in this back and forth? It's not my job to like convert you or proselytize yes. you to classical music. Mm-hmm. It's my mm-hmm. job to say, can I share something that I find really meaningful with you? If you're into it, if you want this, mm-hmm. like, here you go. And also I'm going to try and break down as many of these like challenges that we experience in the process. So yes. I'm going to, I thought through a bunch of these ways. So I'm making it easier for you to, to engage with this. If you want to, I hope what everybody hears me saying is like this beating of the drum of the, if you want to, yes, right. This needs to be a constant part of our thinking, which is. Communities I, have the right to say no. Like, yes. Is the community is the expert mm. and your audience is the expert of what they want to spend their time listening to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it may not be your thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. And that's okay because there's so many, many people in the world and, and your music is the thing for so many people. And so in our, in our business, in our community, it's our desire to say, like, I want to make sure that for anyone for whom this is their thing mm-hmm. knows that it exists. Mm-hmm. And I'm making it so easy for them to engage with it in their life because I want to share this. And I also want to be listening and receiving from these things that I also want in my life. Mm. I know that's kind of like a long-winded answer, but I hope that that leads into what you're thinking, Lydia, which is you know, you're res- how are you responding to those same things is that we're not going in and be- telling people like, you need this. This is, yes. or as we say in LMP land in live music project, where we say, we don't feed the audience a culture vitamin. Like, it's not like you have to take this to get better at life. Like, that's mm-hmm. not what this is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. So, so I'm curious to hear your thoughts. No, I mean, thank you so much for sharing. Um, I, and I really agree with everything that you said that it is absolutely not wrong to share the music that you personally love to see and listen to and perform. I think when there's an expectation of a certain response, that is when things can kind of go awry. And and so I think it's so important to remember that you are welcome to share that music. And then people are also welcome to either, you know, respond in the way that you expect or say no say actually I don't really think that's for me but that doesn't mean that there aren't other people for which that music you know isn't for them like it is for for somebody mm-hmm. and so yeah. yeah it just again a, a sentiment that's kind of been coming up a lot on this season is kind of the sentiment of classical music being in danger classical music dying which I just think is so <sighs> deep breath Lydia deep breath <laughs> Because because it's been the dominant form of music making for literally most, if not all, of Western music history, for people to now say because Beyonce sells out stadiums and classical music doesn't, doesn't at all mean that classical music is in danger of going extinct. It just means that... <laughs> There are other forms of music making and other cultural practices and histories that other people are also really invested in and perhaps more invested in than classical music. And that's okay. And so it doesn't ever mean that there's going to be, you know, an end of a classical music community. And so I think if we can operate from a place of not necessarily like 
operating from a place where, oh, we have to save classical music or classical music is in danger, I think we'll have better opportunities of actually sharing what classical music is and can do versus that elitism of, well, people are just supposed to like this because it's Beethoven. You should just care because it's Beethoven. Like, why should I care? Who's Beethoven? Like, (laughs) yes, you know, yes, yeah. (laughs) There's an assumption there because I should know who Bach is and just care. Why? Right. We have to, people choose to care. And if people aren't invested, then that's okay, because they have other musical histories and legacies and practices that they are invested in. And again, we, we, we shouldn't make assumptions when we go to communities. Like you're saying, it's so important to just go and ask, go and observe, like, what's going on in this community? What do y'all need? Like, what does your cultural, you know, what does what do your cultural practices actually look like? How do I can I participate in those things? Don't assume that you can. Ask, you know. And Ask. so if it's all about this exchange of like I'm not just coming to like, you know, share this like I'm not just coming to um like you said kind of share the gospel of classical music with you, but I'm actually coming to participate in what's already going on here. That's so much more welcoming to the communities that are already there. And then you can have a much more productive conversation, I think. Yeah, I think you're spot on. I think I always want us to start inside ourselves and and say, am I participating in us, them thinking in any Mm -hmm. particular way? Am I being influenced by... Uh, the funding landscape to somehow package this story about who needs classical music and who like (laughs) who already buys classical music Mm. right these kinds of like I just I want us to check in with all of these limiting beliefs and and say like is this actually true is this accurate information why might this be happening or why do I feel like this is a story that's existing and and am I contributing to this story or am I contributing to a healthy sense of community identity through my art making practices yeah and I want to you know and in New Orleans I, I love living in a place that's like it's a music city right and the reason it's a music city is because I can walk anywhere and like hear musicians actively engaged in their practice and that includes me. That's not separate from me, mm. right? That's, I am part of that because I also contribute to those spaces. And that's what I want to be thinking about is, am I contributing to my community identity through the work that we're doing here mm. by welcoming people into this experience, full well knowing that they're making the choices based on what they want to hear, what they want to engage with. They're saying, yeah, that sounds cool. That sounds supportive of the kind of experience that I want to have. That sounds mm. awesome. I want to join. Or they're saying, you know, that's not really for me right now. That's okay. Like it might be for somebody else. Mm-hmm. And fine. Like, you know. Yeah. So yeah. Yes. And I love, you know, this is so again interesting for me to think about as someone who did grow up in a very like conservatory culture and who is still a certified diva. You know I'm a soprano. So oh, yes. <laughs> you know, I I think I never gave too much thought to why am I doing the music that I'm doing? Like what about it do I find compelling? And mm-hmm. Like your point also during your presentation about like artists are supposed to enhance, enhance a community, enhance a space. And so instead of kind of being focused on like, oh, I'm just, you know, 
doing what I do because I like it, which is a good reason to do it. Like doing yeah. doing music and performance and the genres that I do because I like them. Or, But I, I also think um, as a younger singer, I was really invested in being the biggest and the brightest and the best, right? And, mm-hmm. and yeah. so it was competition focused for me. It was, you know, wealth and fame focused for me mm-hmm. versus like, what do I want this music to be doing? What do I want it to say? Right? Like, again, why do I find it compelling? And why should other people find it compelling? Again, I can't just show up in a space and be like, you should care because I'm Lydia Bangura. No, who are you? (laughs) Right? Like, the music should make me care in some way. The music should enhance the space in some way. And so that's something, again, that I, I think that we can focus on in conservatory cultures that are so, like, individualistic in their education um, about like, let's just uplift you and your music career versus what is your music business doing? How does it affect the people around you? Why should people be invested? Like people shouldn't be invested just because of your talent, which sure, that's a good reason for people to invest. But Right. Maybe that is like, maybe, maybe the thing that they want to hear is like that they just want to spend time with that, like, sparkling beautiful tone mm-hmm. and they're like that's how I want that's how I want to enhance my life right now and so they do they do want to hear you but they also they're coming for their own reasons mm-hmm. and the more that we can understand how we are supporting each other through what we're doing mm-hmm. the, the easier it is for us to be like well I really I just want to create experiences for these these types of things yeah. for other people this is not an experience that I'm creating for myself only Mm-hmm. Right. And then being like, why doesn't anybody like my music? Yes. <laughs> like, yeah. just like, exactly. And I think it just changes the way that we go about our businesses so that we are, I mean, we are socially minded. We are like supporting of our, of our communities, our friends, our family through what we're doing. Right. It's just mm. like, yeah. So I think the more that we start to think about what exactly am I engaging in? What is it that I'm doing? And why would other people want this in their life? And then making that experience as low stress as possible for other people to engage in because they want it Mm. is like Mm -hmm. where I want us to be thinking about. And it's so much easier for us to put ourselves out there when we have that kind of information about what we're doing and why we think it's impactful, meaningful to each other. And so it's so much easier for me to show up in any performance space and say, like, I've created this because I want to share this moment with you for these, like, these reasons. It's so much less about, oh, did I execute those, like, crazy intervals the way that I thought I was going to? Did I do those extended techniques in a way that makes me seem very cool? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think that's it. I think as a young singer, I was like, I just want to be cool. Like, I just want to be considered... The coolest and the best. And yeah, there just wasn't any substance behind it. And so, you know, these questions are just so um, thought provoking for me. Last thing that I want to point out that you say in your presentation that I love is also how do you create a place and a community that is multi-purpose, right? So that meets mm-hmm. multiple needs. Again, it's not yeah. bad to just aesthetically appreciate someone's music and be like, yeah, I am yeah. here for their talent. Like, yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. But then how does that space kind of blossom into 
other meeting other needs, you know, creating other opportunities for connection and for continued conversation or for more music to keep happening there and for more people to be involved. And so I just love the idea of multi-purpose spaces and multi-purpose music making that meets multiple needs. Yeah, I love that. Lydia, I'm so glad that you said that because I think hmm, if I could... If I can pull these thoughts together in a cohesive way for a second, which is, which is, I think the pandemic for me really shown a spotlight on, on how easy it is for us to be isolated as humans, even though we're so interconnected technology wise. Mm. And I think that live performance, especially when we are engaging in, I, I think that listening is a sacred act. And I think that being in a space in which you are listening to a live performance that will never happen again in exactly the same way. You will never be seated in exactly that formation with those people in that same space at that same temperature at that moment in time ever again. And I think that we read study after study about how music helps us with belong or, you know, arts and culture helps us with belonging, how it helps us with like wellness and like mental health And the more that you can start to realize that that's what you're contributing to is that that's the setting that you're trying to create for each other Mm. is that we can get away from, I have to bring classical music to these people that don't have X, Y, Z in their lives. Mm. I'm saying, I want to be a part of the joy, health, and well-being of your life. I want to be a part of the belonging that you experience. Mm. And I'm going to use the skills that I have worked on and developed in this life to make that possible. I'm doing the the little thing that I can to say, let's all show up in this space together. And maybe we'll make connections. Maybe we'll feel that sense of, I met someone new, or I feel like I've reignited a bond between people that I haven't seen in a long time. And I experienced a moment to sit with my feelings and reflect on whatever's happening in the music. I feel tied to the ancestors as well as the people that are coming in the future, right? Mm -hmm. Through this work, I'm here for, you know, maybe it's, I'm hearing something that was written a thousand years ago, right? And I'm like, wow, isn't that amazing? But also I might be hearing something brand new. It's a very first performance that may stretch so far into the future. I have no concept Mm. of the people in the future that are going to be hearing this. And I got to be there when it started, or I got to be the person who shared that the first time. Mm -hmm. And those are such important things. But if we don't, we don't actively think about how we're making that available to each other, how we're working to provide that space and enhance the places that we're in, the community that we share together, then it's, and then we just revert back to, oh, well, wasn't that high C enough for you? Like, you know, mm. or, but, oh, I counted it so well. See how mm. good I am at music. Yeah. And, and we start, and we're forgetting about who, who we're really there to serve. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and when we can start to think about that, that makes us way better musicians in community as well as being better business people, because we know what we're there to do. We know what we're making happen. We know the benefits, right? And we're able to say, like, this is valuable, Mm -hmm. right? This experience that you have is so much more than I counted that septuplet in time, right? So much more than that. 
But when we commit to doing those things at a really high level and then making that all of those benefits available to each other, that's when like really magical things happen. So I don't think it doesn't, you'll never catch me in a workshop being like, don't practice as much. (laughs) (laughs) No, like you built these skills and you've refined your talent, right? So that this magical moment can happen between people. Yes. And I think, I mean, that's, that's it for me mm-hmm. all day, every day. <laughs> like, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing and for being on the show. I just really oh, appreciate every opportunity to talk to you. Um, is there anything else that you are currently working on that you want to mention or that I can add in the show notes? Um, let's see here. I obviously, um, I do want people, since we've talked about a couple of these things, I do want people to know if they sign up for my email list, I do a giveaway for coaching. So if you've ever thought about coaching and you're not entirely sure whether or not this is for you, there's like a $5 coaching that I do like every month or every other month or something like that. So it might be a good way to just see if that might be a, a resource that's useful in your life. So I think that's that's the coaching side. And then I, I just would love it if people listening are... Th- you know, want to get involved with more new music or they want to maybe even just like graphic scores or any of that stuff that we mm-hmm. talked about. If you're wanting, if you're wanting a, a new music bestie that like to talk <laughs> about new music things with, like just message me. I'm, I'm on the, in, like I'm on the interwebs at Mezzo Enen, I-H-N-E-N. And I love having those kinds of conversations. I want people to feel welcomed into this and new music can feel really, really intimidating sometimes. Yeah. And so I just want people to feel like if you've thought you might want to check it out, you just want somebody to talk to about it, like mm. message me, right? Just to, like feel, feel encouraged. Like I, I hope Lydia, you would, you know, back me up and say like, absolutely. Megan's I, your girl. I try to walk my talk. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like, absolutely. On, I do mean it. <laughs> absolutely. So, thank you, Lydia. This is like such, such a, uh, an open-hearted and generous way that you support your community, that you support all of the people that are listening. I am so thrilled that you asked me to be a part of this. It's really meaningful to me. And I just wish you all the best in what you're doing here in this space. Like you are, you shared values, shared activities, and consistency, you're doing it. So I'm I'm thrilled that I get to be, be in this mix of, of this beautiful, beautiful community that you're building. that is going to do it for this episode of the podcast and this season of the podcast thank you so much to Megan Enan for being on the show this is truly I've wanted to have Megan on the show for like two years now (laughs) I'm such a big fan and I'm really really thankful that she is a part of my musical community for real, if you want to reach out to her or you want to reach out to me with your thoughts on the show, again, all the links to her work are in the show notes. Both she and I would love to hear from you. And thank you so much for listening to the past eight episodes, the past eight weeks. I really appreciate your support. Next month in December will be my fall 2023 in review episode, and then we'll wrap it up for 2023. 
If you have questions or feedback about the show, anything that you heard this season or before this season, and you want to get in touch with me to talk to me about it, if you have a suggestion for what I should talk about on the show, anything I should read, music I should be listening to, or ideas for a guest that you'd like to hear on the show, if you want to be on the show yourself to talk about what you do in music, please send me an email at hermusicacademia at gmail.com or go to my website, hermusicacademia.com and fill out the contact form there. We got to get our guests rolling for 2024. We've got some open spots, so please send me an email. Again, I really appreciate your support. I appreciate your comments and your feedback. And I'll see you next month to wrap up 2023. Until next time, thanks for listening.